0: Thanks, Roxanne. You know, my old church in Britain, one of the things that um, we started doing there was um, some, what I call forecourt evangelism. The uh, front of the church had um, some space and it was a very busy area because um, it was kind of uh, four major roads converged right there and uh, as well there was a couple of others that were really nearby but there was a lot of people traffic so people in britain walk everywhere a lot of walking and push bikes in britain things are fairly close so you can do that i mean i wouldn't be exaggerating to say about one third of the people walked to church Um, but this forecourt area was great we put a little band in the corner and we'd have, you know, just nibblets and food and that sort of thing. And we'd, we'd just connect with people as they literally walked past the church. And we'd get a crowd of us out there doing something. And sometimes a crowd attracts a crowd. Oh, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> all that sort of thing. And uh, so let's have a quick look at the image there. You can see that that's kind of the idea. That That's the church. And uh, there's a, as you can see, there's a bit of space at the front of the church there where you can gather and do that sort of thing. Um, one, one year, uh, my associate pastor, Josh, uh, he's the young adult pastor, he thought we would get an evangelist out who had this process of where he would um, get it, to, well, he wouldn't organise the team, Josh organised the team, but a team of us then would ask people, and a lot of them were asked at the front of the church or at a couple of the local universities, very much a university city reading, and um, the question that we're asking people was this, if you could ask God one question what would it be and we told the people we were recording your answers we've got a visiting speaker and um, he's going to be addressing those questions in whatever it was you know we'd have a date and we'd have a flyer and the whole thing and so a bunch of people showed up to that um, some of them completely unchurched and one of the major topics he dealt with was suffering and he was right because a lot of people did ask a question about suffering Uh, Including myself, some of the people that talked with me, they definitely raised that issue. My topic today is God's perspective on suffering. God's perspective on suffering. The sort of questions could be like if your Christian God is real, why is suffering in this world? Is it because He does not care about the people of this world? Or is it because He's not active in this world? And can't do anything about it. A couple of theological terms that we often use uh, at Bible College, are the, the term God is all loving and God is all powerful, attributes of God. And so some people equate those two together and say therefore there should be no suffering. Um, theologically, we, you know, we can respond by saying well actually God has given people free will. He doesn't dictate that everything that happens on planet Earth is exactly what he wants. And so because he's given humans free will, sometimes they do some very, very negative things and because they ignore the teachings of Jesus. But of course, an answer like that's not going to convince certain people or even have any influence on certain people. And one of those people is, for instance, Eli Wiesel. Let's have a look at Elie Wiesel for a moment. Here he is in a German concentration camp. That's his, he's the one with his head stuck out a little bit. He survived the concentration camp. His dad died. Um, in his book called Night, which is quite a big seller, in one of the scenes within the book, he describes a young lad who's being hung in front of them. He watches him die. He said he had the face of a sad angel. And as... um. As this young lad was being hung, he heard one of the fellow prisoners say this, where is God? Where is he? Where can he be now? Well, Wiesel goes on to say that as a result of the things he witnessed in the concentration camp, he became a pessimist. He writes, never shall I forget the moments which murdered my God and murdered my soul and turned my dreams into dust. Can words like hope, happiness, and joy ever have meaning again? Is he right? Is there any purpose in suffering, or is suffering completely a pointless reality? Well, strangely, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Romans 5, 3 to 4, he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. The sceptic could argue here, well, what would this theologian know about suffering? reclining in his comfortable couch while he dictates theology to a scribe. But of course, uh, anyone who's read much of the New Testament realises the Apostle Paul did know what suffering was all about. Let me read a little portion here from Second Corinthians 11:24. 24. This is Paul describing some of his experiences. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Well, a brief survey there of the Apostle Paul reveals that he certainly knew suffering. The 30 lashes, uh, 40 lashes minus one was, uh, because it was legal to give 40 lashes, you give up to 39. But many people, after being whipped in that manner, with the brutal Roman whips, I mean, their body went into shock. They got infected and they died. That was quite common. Paul survived those three whippings. He mentions he was beaten with rods. He mentions he was pelted with stones. And that's not like we used to pelt people with stones when we were kids at school sometimes. But I mean, they were little pebbles. I mean, Paul's talking about this. You've seen these stones the last few weeks, haven't you? Um, Paul means he was pelted with brick size stones and the passage actually tells us he was left for dead when you read the account of it so they thought they'd killed him so he seriously suffered and he talks about the emotional trauma as well though you know false believers and so forth he's he's in constant danger because there are those who want to kill him he knows his life is constantly under threat there's an emotional toll that takes on a person and as well he, he finally adds that of course I have that that heart for the churches that I've planted all over the Roman world. Now, some were doing extremely well, but others were struggling. They were divided, all sorts of tensions within the church, and some were being invaded by false prophets, getting false teaching. So, he felt that pressure as well. And so, knowing that, when we read these words, it does mean that Paul knows what he's talking about. Romans 5, 3, 4, let's look at it again. It says, not only so... But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, I know, of course, it can have the opposite effect. Instead of um, suffering making you better, it can easily make you bitter because um, you have the big question God, why on earth are you allowing this? It's a struggle. But let me give you a contrast. I, I shared with you before the story of Elie Wiesel in the German concentration camp. Let me share with you this time the story of Corrie ten Boone, also in a German concentration camp. Let's have a look at a lot of imagery up there. The kind of the top corner one there is her when she's young, around the time she was in the concentration camp. And you see one of her famous books there, The Hiding Place. And in the picture with the blue square around it, it's where she's showing the hiding place, where she's Dutch and they would hide... A Jewish folk who were going to be caught, tortured, imprisoned by the Nazis and they used to hide Bibles in there as well but eventually she got caught as well and had to face the concentration camp. She too saw people murdered like Elie Wiesel, watched her sister die, felt the pain of a whip and sensed all around her the dissolution of virtue. There is another element present that only a Christian can understand, the element of victory and hope. Time and time again, she refers to the ways in which God turned evil to good. If you've ever read the story, you'll remember the many miracles that took place. The secret Bible studies, prayer times with other believers, acts of sacrifice, compassion. Wiesel's book leads to unyielding despair, but Corrie's book leads to triumphant hope. There is that word hope, and it's there within her pages. There's a sense of hope. It's remarkable, considering all the suffering she's enduring, her own sister dying there in the concentration camp and yet she talks about hope in the thick of that suffering. An interesting character development thing too because when Corrie arrived, she uh, would reveal that she didn't have the strong faith of her sister, she found herself immediately complaining asking God, why on earth have you allowed, you know, we've been trying to help you, we've been trying to, you know, save Jewish lives, we've been trying to get the Word of God into people's hands and you've allowed us to be arrested. We're in this horrible place. And she complained and complained and complained to God. Her sister never did. But she, she shares that her character, through the suffering, actually developed. And she started to develop a faith like her sister, a character like her sister's. And of course, after that, she went around the world teaching about Jesus' love, God's perspective on suffering and forgiveness. If you've ever been through the Alpha uh, series, of course, there's, there's a clip, a very old clip of her talking about forgiveness. Job 36.15 says these words, But those who suffer, He, God, He delivers in their suffering." He speaks to them in their affliction. You've heard this phrase, haven't you? God whispers to us in our successes, in our pleasures. But in our suffering, he speaks loud and clear. I remember in uh, the mid-90s, April '96. There was a massacre that took place in australia it's referred to as the port arthur massacre where martin bryant shot 54 people killing 35 of them and australia felt it but especially hobart felt it it's just south of hobart it's really like a neighboring outer suburb you know port arthur a lot of big questions And uh, it's quite vivid memory for me too because my father died, I think it was the very next day, from lung cancer. He passed away. Uh, He's a smoker most of his life and eventually uh, emphysema and lung cancer had uh, taken him out. Pamela was at uh, university. We we lived in Launceston, which is also in Tassie. Uh, It's about three hours from Hobart. And uh, she was at the university... Uh, uh, one of the Lonnie, Univ- the Lonnie University at the time and studying nursing and we had a common friend a guy we nicknamed Guru Tim he liked to talk philosophy and theology and he said to Pam just, just after the massacre he said to Pamela um, with a chuckle actually he said this must shake your faith and she said no it just makes me cling tighter to Jesus interestingly in Hobart Rather than the church's attendances diminishing, they increased. Backslidden Christians saying, oh my goodness, this is horrendous. I've got to get my life right with God. I'm getting back to church. Lost people thinking this world is becoming an awful place. I wonder, is there a God turning up to Hobart churches seeking for truth? You know, the New Agement um, believes that the God is within you. Teaches that you can be your own God, lead your own destiny. The interesting thing in the face of severe suffering, that all just crumbles. It seems to offer no hope. I've uh, known a lot of Muslims over the years and had some quite uh, long conversations with some of them. Lovely people, many of them. But you talk with a Muslim and ask them about their God and say, Does Allah know anything of suffering? And the Muslim would say, no, not at all. How can he? He's almighty God. He has never suffered. Of course, we as Christians have a very different theology. We believe the almighty son of God came into this world, fully divine, fully human. And he experienced suffering. And therefore, the reality is our God knows suffering. Jesus speaks of himself, Mark 8 31, Jesus began telling his disciples what would happen to him, he said, the nation's leaders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law of Moses will make the son of man suffer terribly, he will be rejected and killed. You see, Jesus knew what it was to suffer on planet earth, not just the ultimate cross, not ultimately the cross, but you think of many of those moments with the religious leaders, sharp debates, they were out to kill him and he, he knew this, here he's prophesying, this is all going to happen. Luke uh, 24, 26 says, didn't you know that the Messiah would have to suffer before he was given his glory? Well, the book of Hebrews, probably written by Apollos, and now that Jesus has suffered and was tempted, he can help anyone else who is tempted. And you can see that there, that's in the theology. The idea is that because Jesus has experienced suffering when we pray, when we connect with God, we know actually He understands. And that can make a big difference. Some of you will remember Joni Erickson, as we pronounce it in Australia. The proper pronunciation is Johnny, Johnny Erickson. Uh, if she's talking about herself, she calls herself Johnny, not Joanie. You might have seen her speak. She came out to Australia many times in the, the wheelchair, great communicator. And there she's uh, as a younger lady when she uh, more recently had had the accident painting. She became an extraordinary artist painting with a mouth. Let me remind you of the story. She dived off a raft in Chesapeake Bay, Baltimore, there was a submerged rock and she broke her neck. She's a pretty young teenage girl. If it wasn't for the quick thinking of a friend who dived in after her, realising she hadn't come to the surface quickly enough, he rescued her and she was saved. She was taken to hospital. She was there for about two to three weeks and they had to give her the devastating news that she was paralysed from the neck down. She would never be able to move the rest of her body. How do you receive, how do you cope with news like that when you're a, you're a teenager with your life ahead of you? Well, as you can imagine, she was absolutely devastated. One night in uh, one of the depths of despair, she says to her friend Jackie, who would often spend time with her, Jackie, I can't stand living in this grotesque body anymore. <laughs> Please bring me some pills, push them down my throat or a razor blade even, and slip my wrists. I can't live like this anymore. And you can certainly understand how she would feel that way. One night, a newfound friend, Cindy, who had been spending a lot of time with her, um, she was, would often read to her, and one night reading to her, she said this, Johnny, Jesus knows how you feel. You aren't the only one. Why, he was paralyzed too. Johnny asked, why, what do you mean? It's true, said Sidney. Remember, he was nailed to a cross. His back was raw from beatings. He must have yearned for a way to move, to change positions or redistribute his weight. But he couldn't. He was paralyzed by the nails. This must have been a moment of revelation. Because somehow those words went deep into Johnny's heart. She writes, at that moment, God came incredibly close. It was a powerful, transforming work of the Holy Spirit at that point. And of course, as uh, many of you are aware, uh, Johnny went on to be an evangelist, motivational speaker all over the world. Um, Wrote many books, many bestsellers, recorded music Um, and she often spoke on finding purpose in suffering God's perspective on suffering and she talked about the future because many people of course because she became quite famous many healing evangelists would come and pray for her believing for God to heal her but God never did but she said you know I will be healed the day will come when I will run again I will walk again, I will swim again, the day will come, the new heavens and the new earth. And she would often finish her, I've heard one of her messages where she finishes like that. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Romans 8.18, I consider what we suffer at this present time cannot be compared at all with all the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul, there is speaking of heaven. What's heaven like? Well, the Apostle John received many revelations, many visions of heaven, and he records them in a book we have at the end of the Bible. Let me read a portion of one of them. Revelation 21.3, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every... Tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. The day will come. No mourning, no crying, no pain. And that's that hope that Christians have. And we can even be secure in that hope. Because we understand salvation is by faith alone. We don't have to have a theology thinking that one day we may have done enough, enough good works to make our way to heaven. Rather, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, someone who typifies this journey of suffering and yet finding purpose in the midst of suffering... Is a chap called John Wycliffe. There he is. There's quite a few statues of him around England. John Wycliffe was born in 1328, a long time ago. He studied at Oxford University. And uh, actually, where I used to live in Reading, Reading is only about a 40-minute drive to Oxford University, so it's not too far away. And so uh, Pamela and I actually visited Oxford quite a few times. Beautiful city, actually. Um, mind you you can't park your car in the city they make you park it like about 10 minute drive out of the city and you've got to catch a bus in there because they don't like their city being cluttered with too many cars (laughs) Um, but uh, Merton College this image here is where he lectured this is the actual college where he lectured made in the 1200s and uh, Pammy and I have walked around those pathways walked through the buildings it's all still functional to this day they made buildings pretty well back then didn't they well, um, Wycliffe uh, went and studied at Oxford and uh, he was ordained a Catholic priest, um, got his Bachelor of Divinity in 1369 and developed, he, he got, graduated with his Doctor of Divinity in 1372. He's a man who loves study, and he loved to lecture and he loved to preach. And uh, having access to so much literature, he was very well read. It was, uh, con- Oxford was considered the time the most advanced and prestigious university in all of Europe. I mean, still one of the best to this day. Now, as he studied the Scriptures, he started to see there were a lot of practices that were around in the church of the day that were not biblical. He started to preach against them. First of all, he started to preach against indulgences and an indulgence was something where you could pay a sum of money to the local church and you'd be given a document with a seal, an official Roman church seal in it and that could say all manner of things, this has rescued your mother from purgatory, this confirms that you now are on your way to heaven, you name it, whatever, you could buy it and of course when Wycliffe realised this is not in the Bible, he preached against it with great aggression. Well, um, he also saw there were a lot of other things. One of the things he was deeply concerned about was, was the, the wealth of what was the Catholic Church of the time in Britain. It owned one third of all the lands. And his point was, we, we, we are so wealthy as a church. Can we not give more to the poor? The, the workers, the laborers of Britain have had a hold on their salaries for 25 years. But the price of food is going up. They can't survive. They work so many hours and struggle to put food in the stomachs of their children. Can we not give more to the poor? He also realized that a a theology, which uh, we would title today, transubstantiation, he did not believe that is in the Scriptures. What am I talking about? had a chat about this with um, one of the young ladies who's um, just uh, put a hand up to become a member of the church, was recently baptised, chatting with her this week about it. What is transubstantiation? It's the theology that when we take communion, or the Eucharist as some churches may call it, it's when the, the, the bread and the wine, we often take it up in this area, don't we? With the bread and the wine, it literally becomes the body of Jesus if it is an ordained minister who is leading that ceremony. Now, Wycliffe believed this is simply not Bible-based. It's a symbol. It doesn't literally become the body and blood of Jesus. So he wrote a, you know, a book about this, you know, proving his point. And, uh, and as one of the things he will quote in there is this, that it was introduced by Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran, uh, Lateran Council in 1215. The church knew nothing of that doctrine before 1215. As he would call it, it's a modern doctrine. And one of his other great beliefs was we need to get church services, we need to get the Word of God in the vernacular, in the common tongue, we need Bibles in English, we need services in English. Well, he got himself into a lot of trouble with these beliefs, and especially because he's writing them, he's lecturing them, and he's preaching about them. Um, In fact, whilst he was at Oxford, he lectured um, to many of his students and built up a big preaching team and these guys would go out into all the villages, most of the British people lived in villages at this time, they'd go out into the villages and these guys were known as the Lollards, Um, someone we used to listen to in church history, we were at Bible College, an excellent speaker called uh, David Pawson, a Baptist guy, who gives a great history, um, preaching history on church history. And he referred to the Lollard saying they got that title, it's, it's like related to our modern English word, lullaby. They got the title because they would sing. They would go into a village and they would sing, you know, get these, aca- like an acapella group, would come into the city, entertainment was few and far between in those days, so people would come out listen to them and then they'd preach the Word of God, they'd share the Gospel, they'd share the stories of the Old Testament and the theological point behind the story and it was impacting the villages massively. Well, Pope Gregory VI issued five bulls, five papal bulls, documents against Wycliffe, denouncing his theories and calling for his arrest. There was a couple of trials, however, Wycliffe had friends in the royal family, the Duke of Lancaster, King Edward III, and when he passed away, his, the Queen Mother was still a strong supporter of Wycliffe, so they couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> But eventually, a new archbishop came to power. And he felt if he could get Wycliffe out of Oxford, his influence would greatly diminish. And so he formed a council. Doesn't that sound democratic? He formed a council of 12, and they voted unanimously that Wycliffe be removed from Oxford. So he was denied all of his academic rights couldn't use the library he couldn't lecture and they thought let's let's pop him up in uh, hmm, Lutterworth he can be the parish priest of Lutterworth get him out of the way he was devastated he talked with the cha- chancellor of the university and of course Oxford University chancellor just said to him look I, I so feel for you but there's nothing I can do if I oppose this they'll just get rid of me as well But he said, but but my work, access to the library. And he found himself before God feeling extremely depressed. He felt that the Lord had removed all of the things that he was so passionate about doing, and they were in his service. Why have you removed all of this, God? I can't understand this. Well, in the thick of seeking God in prayer, he felt the Lord say to him on one occasion, John, in Lutterworth, you will translate the Bible into English. And it was like a shaft of light came down to his heart. And so, he was, uh, he's a popular lecturer. He got his students and fellow staff members to, they accessed the library and they, they took the materials up to Lutterworth and they translated the Word of God. Big team of people, scribes as well, writing it out by hand into English. And they did it pretty quickly too, the whole Bible, translated from Latin into English. The Wycliffe Bible, the first ever English Bible. There's a powerful moment when the, the New Testament, they, not only is it complete, but they have a heap of copies they've scribed. And you've got all of these preachers. You've got the New Testament tucked under their arm. They're off to the villages. And not only now are they going to share the Word of God, they're going to read directly from English, the Holy Scriptures in English to the people. That was a wonderful move of God. Wonderful move of God. But I tell you what. With all the pressure of five papal bulls against him, and of course it was completely illegal to translate the Bible as well, it was not easy facing that. And he suffered a stroke whilst they were translating the Bible, and shortly after the whole Bible was completed, he suffered a second stroke, Wycliffe, and at the age of 56, that second stroke took him out. But you know what? I think he thought his work was done, and he was ready to go be with the Lord. The New Testament was complete. The Old Testament was complete. The whole Bible in English. And he didn't stop there, of course. His writings went on to influence all of the reformers. John Huss, who I told the story about about three weeks ago. Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwindley. And, of course, the great British reformer, Tyndale. All of these guys read his, his uh, documents, his writings, his books. And you've got to remember, there's this famous moment, which is considered the beginning of the Reformation, which is um, 1517, where Martin Luther nails his 95 theses on the church door for debate. You know, 95 topics of discussion and uh, considered the beginning of the Reformation, 133 years after Wycliffe's death. But his writings had deeply influenced Luther, the great reformer. He's been known as the morning star of the English Reformation, the very beginnings, the early start of it. Let's have a quick look here at um, the church I pastored. The name of the church that I pastored is Wycliffe Baptist. That was the name of the church in Britain. The church was named after John Wycliffe. Let me finish with these words of Jesus. John 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. An older translation says, In this world you will have suffering. He never tries to hide the fact that we're going to suffer. As I know it's not easy to preach this because you think, Well, no one wants to suffer. But the fact is Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world. You will have suffering in this world. I'm not hiding that from you. And it's one of the weaknesses of some prosperity preachers where it seems to lean so much toward it's all about you come to Jesus, life's going to be wonderful. He blesses you, but he never says you're not going to have trouble and suffering in this world. But he does say something encouraging. But take car, heart, take heart, I have overcome the world. Or take courage. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Shall we pray? As the worship team returns, let's close in prayer. Father, here today as we've dealt with a confronting subject, the subject of suffering, and yet uh, it is always going to be pertinent Because in this world, we know from the teachings of Jesus, we will have trouble. There will be suffering. But Lord, we take hope in the fact that you have overcome the world. That there is a world beyond this one. We we can be assured of our our journey to heaven if we have placed our faith in you. Father, I want to pray for each one. There may be some here today that really know what it is to suffer. Some of them may be going through an experience right now that is extremely difficult. Pray for each member of the congregation this morning. I'm going to ask for your grace in the midst of pain. I'm going to pray for your provision in the midst of challenge and difficulty. I'm going to pray for your love, your peace, to be felt despite the circumstances. In the name of Jesus. Amen.